Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week our podcast features three episodes of Tarzan. Each one is about ten minutes long. Again we bring you another chapter of Edgar Rice Burroughs' amazing history of Tarzan of the Apes. The astounding record of a superman who became the master of beasts and the mighty monarch of the African jungle. By the grace of a kindly god and the tender care of Kayla, at whose breast the little son of Lord and Lady Greystoke was nourished, Tarzan grew to young manhood. From his natural parents, he had inherited fineness and intelligence. And from his foster mother, Kayla, and the ape tribe, he had acquired tremendous strength, amazing agility, and animal cunning. And some twenty years since his abduction, we find Tarzan swinging through the jungles, a young man, splendid both in his youth and manhood. Carelessly, Tarzan's body swings from branch to branch. There's an easy grace about his perilous leaps and accurate catches as he progresses from limb to limb, which suggests both the assurance of the ape and the flowing rhythmic grace of a trained trapeze artist executing an often rehearsed feat of daring. Tarzan is off on a holiday. He's returning to the one place in the entire jungle that is his own, a place he had discovered long ago, a tiny hut on the shore of the great water. It has taken him many years to learn how to manipulate the odd mechanical thing which had swung open to him the door of that hut, which he would have been surprised to learn was the home of his mother and father and his birthplace. However, the door of that hut had opened to him more than the interior of the rude cabin which Lord Greystoke had built for his wife and son. It had taught him that he was an M-A-N, not an A-P-E. It had taught him to read and write after a fashion. For hour after hour, year after year, he had pored over the first primer which he found there. But perhaps more important to his physical being and survival, it had given him access to the hunting knife which hung at his side and the locket which dangled from his throat. Occasionally, Tarzan left the ape tribe and ventured to his hut near the seashore. And now he's making his way there. It's late afternoon. The sun of a dying day is filtering through the dank foliage of the trees to make an intricate pattern of onyx and gold on the spongy mold on the ground beneath. The jungle is reverberant with sound. The chatter of monkeys, the singing of birds, and the occasional growling and snarling of the larger animals as they make their imperial way to the waterhole. Tarzan is happy. Happy as a schoolboy on a holiday. Swinging along his tireless, arboreal way, he inhales the dank, pungent smell of the jungle with boyish delight. And the grim grandeur, the poisonous beauty of the jungle fills his soul with a feeling for which the ape language has no name. Meanwhile, off the West African coast, a small tramp steamer is plying her way through a placid sea. In the tiny salon of the ship are four people. Professor Porter, an old savant who exists in the present but lives in the archaeological past, his daughter Jane, a beautiful girl, whose charm is not only that of beauty, but of wholesome loveliness and intelligence. Of these charms, the young man of the group is fully aware. He is William Cecil Clayton, a young Englishman, typical of the blonde, blue-eyed Oxford gentleman, and eldest son of Lord Greystoke. 
The other man in the salon is the captain of the ship. What are you reading, Father? Uh, 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 yes, of course, my dear, of course. <laughs> I asked you what you were reading. Oh, oh uh, sorry. Uh, a book, Jane. Uh, one of those dusty ones that you persist in believing gives me my hay fever. It's called Africa Cristana. Uh, Mochili wrote it in 1816. Only 1816? That's rather current fiction for you, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, a man ought to keep up with modern literature, or, or he's liable to, to become an old foggy. Uh, <laughs> I suppose anything published after the flood would be considered rather modern by an archaeologist, wouldn't it, Professor Porter? Uh, oh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Uh, what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on with your reading, Father. We won't disturb you any more. We're almost there, aren't we, Captain Tracy? Uh, I beg your pardon. Well, honestly, I don't know which is the worst, you or Father. It's enough to give a person an inferiority complex. I'm the only one aboard that seems to find me most fascinating. You're forgetting me, aren't you? Well, one could never forget anyone so gallant. But really, Captain, a person would think that you were burdened down with all the worries of the world. Uh, not all of them, Miss Porter, but I'm afraid I have my share. Oh, really? What? Mm, merely a matter of ship's discipline. Uh, nothing really important, I hope. Beg pardon, sir, but I'd like to see you, sir. Uh, what kind of discipline is this, Newton? Coming in without knocking. Take off your cap. Yes, sir. Sorry, my lady. Well, well, what is it? What is it? I'm afraid, sir. Don't ever let them know I told you, sir. They skin me alive. That's what they do, sir. They skin me alive. Like, sir. What are you talking about? Mutiny, sir. Down below deck, sir. Uh. They're all in the forecastle, sir. Uh, mutiny? Mutiny? Isn't there some law about that? Mutiny, I smell it coming. That rotten crew we shipped its head. My compliments to Mr. Yard, Newton. Tell him to report to me at once. Here. I'll batter those deck guys down in their hats and scuttle them like rats. Pardon, sir, but it's the first thing you hope that's leaving me, sir. He's down in the glory. I'll talk to him now, sir. Oh, oh, he is, eh? Is there anything I can do, sir? I don't worry, Clayton. I'll pay this affair up in a minute. You keep Miss Porter and the professor from being frightened. I'm not at all frightened. Beg pardon, sir. I'd better get to know before they get hit me. They'd kill me if they knew I'd informed you, sir. All right, Newton. I'll remember this. Go below there and save your skin. Thank you, sir. Mr. Clayton, we'll find two automatics in the drawer of that desk. You'll take one and come with me. Certainly. Uh, what am I going to you? <laughs> Good Lord. It's Newton. Come on, Clayton. Right on. Uh, what's the matter? Is the door stuck? Just nothing. We're bombing. <laughs> While the voyagers from the world outside are at the mercy of the mutinous crew, miles away, Tarzan is hanging from a tree branch, overlooking a clearing in the forest, and sees the beginning of a jungle tragedy. Sabor the lioness is dozing, surrounded by her happy family. One of her cubs wanders beneath the tree that hides Hista, the snake, the silent, strangling horror of the jungle. Hista, hungry and alert, drops part of her great and snarling length down from the branch and circles the cub, draws it up into the tree to slowly force it down into a constricting being by the undulating, torturous contraction of those great ringed muscles. The of a lioness, awake to the danger with a snarl of mingled rage and anguish, hurls herself with a terrific leap to rescue her cub. She misses. Again and again she leaps in a frantic effort to reach the snake. A roar shreds the chaotic monotone of the jungle into tatters. Shabor's bestial anguish moves Tarzan to pity. He falls forward, giving himself a tremendous tippetus with his legs and catapults himself through the air. It's a tremendous leap, superhuman. He's leaping for the end of Sister's tail. If he makes it, he may not be able to cling to that slimy, lashing length and will fall to the infuriated beast below. He won't make it. He won't. He does. 
He should be. He should be. He falls. His weight nearly jerks Hister loose from the branch. Like lightning, Hister can flash to lash him to the ground. But Tarzan lets go, drops to the branch beneath. Grasping it just in time, he falls fast. He dangles for a brief moment, but just for a moment. A snarl warns him. He's hanging close enough to the ground to be in reach of Sabo's vicious leaps. He pulls himself up to the branch. The tip of one of Sabo's claws cuts a tiny gash in his heel. He stands on the branch, gathers himself for a leap. Oh! Hister sing with body, slaps itself around his waist, tightens. Then slowly commences to draw him up to the branch above, where it can hold him fast against the branch and exert the terrific pressure which will crush him. Tarzan struggles terrifically, but slowly, slowly feels himself being drawn. Tarzan's mind races. With a great effort, he unwinds the grass rope around his waist, snatches the long hunting knife from its sheath, and plunges it into the narrow part of the reptile's tail. The snake writhes, but doesn't lose its hold. Hastily, Tarzan works the blade through the resisting muscular strength until the handle protrudes at one end and the blade at the other. The serpent's agony has caused it to lose the distance it's gained in drawing Tarzan to the branch on which it lies. Tarzan is on the level with the branch from which he's drawn. Hurriedly, he ties the rope above the knife, letting it slide down the snake's body until the knife keeps it from slipping. Then, rushing like a madman, he snubs the rope around the branch. Just a strains. The branch creaks ominously, but doesn't break. The pain of pulling against the knife in his body makes Hister slowly release its hold on Tarzan. Unable to let go of the branch above and secure to the one below, the great serpent is all but powerless. Its body is stretched up almost straight. Its dreadful leverage is gone. Tarzan climbs up the trunk of the tree, gains the upper branch. The cub is still struggling feebly. Tarzan, still clinging to the tree, extends his legs out, locks them around the branch and hits his neck in what is known in wrestling as a scissors. He applies the pressure of those powerful legs. Harder, harder, harder. Pulling the lion cub from the mouth of the reptile with one free hand. Hister's great mouth opens wider and wider. No longer eager to keep up prey, only anxious to escape the pressure of those powerful legs. The cub is free. Tarzan swings down, drops the cub gently on the ground and up again on the branch before Sabor can furl herself upon him. Sabor, seeing her cub restored, pounces upon it, licking it, turning it over gently, worried. The cub recovers his breath and whimpers. Convinced that her offspring is safe, Sabor turns her attention to the thing up in the tree. Tarzan sits panting. Strange that after his good deed, Sabor should be anxious to factor into rhythms, jungle gratitude. However, undismayed, Tarzan looks down into the baleful eyes and snarling face of Sabor. There's an ominous creak, a splintering. The limb under Tarzan is given way. He's falling, falling into the merciless fangs and terrible paws of Sabor. He grasps the small branch. It breaks. Tarzan plunges downward, downward, falling to the ground. He strikes the ground. On his head and shoulder, he lies still, unconscious. Tarzan of the Apes, brought to you out the pages of Edgar Rice Burroughs' famous book. Tarzan lies unconscious on the ground. Sabor sees a lithe, hairless body in eight and motionless before her. Crouching, snarling, her lean haunches gather beneath her, her back arches with a spring, her jaws gaping to reveal her yellow fangs. Merciless hatred for the thing which lies so helpless in front of her, gleams from her baleful, yellowish eyes. Boys, tense, crouched for the leap. The lioness waits for some movement, some motion which will send her hurling upon her victim. There is a moment of silence, a tense moment, a moment in which furious death waits to execute its grim mission. Boys, waiting. 
slowly Sabor's animal brain connects the presence of her cub with Tarzan. Hister was devouring the cub. Tarzan fought Hister. The cub is safe. Slowly, suspiciously, the great beast relaxes. The hair on her short mane gradually lies down, and her tensed haunches straighten. Slowly, very slowly, she advances toward Tarzan's limp body. Snarling deep in her throat, she stops, showing this strange creature lying so still before her, the deference of fear. Cautious, ever ready to crush the life out of the thing with a mighty paw, should it move, she advances closer and closer, step by step. Her sharp, pungent breath is hot on Tarzan's neck. Sabor sniffs. The thing has a strange scent. Not the scent of an ape. Sabor is puzzled. Tarzan stirs. Moans a little in his unconsciousness. Sabor leaps back, snarling, her powerful ball raised to crush the head of that strange creature. Slowly, she puts her foot back on the ground, circles Tarzan, and without further ado, Trots away, urging her cubs before her. Sabor, the merciless killer, the feared, the dreaded, Sabor, the beast, has learned gratitude. Tarzan lies unconscious. The fall would have been sufficient to kill an ordinary man, but Tarzan breathes. The jungle sun sinks lower and lower. Suddenly there is no day. A dank, steaming mist arises from the ground and drifts in great clouds through the forest like ghosts of massive monsters returned from some primitive jungle of eons before. Tarzan still does not move. He lies easy prey to the savage beasts of the jungle, the deadly insects, the sleeping leopard, the murderous gorillas, and worst of all, the snake, Hista, the silent, cold, crushing, slithering death. The moon comes up, making the jungle a wilderness of tall shadows, growing in a myriad of puddles of moonlight. The jungle becomes replete with sound, the whimpering cry of the lemurs, the weird laughter of the hyenas at the water hole, the roar of Numa, the lion, walking in imperial disdain, heralding his approach to the water hole. A whole dead weight is slowly coiling itself around Tarzan's body. Its heavy gliding pressure stirs him, with a growl of anger, Tarzan regains consciousness. The small steamer, bearing our passengers and the mutinous crew, steams down the golden path laid by the moon off the sea on the West African coast. The same moon which shines down upon the inner Tarzan, his cousin Clayton could see if he chose to look through a porthole of the ship's salon. How closely related, and yet how far removed these two. Tarzan, the ape man, and William Cecil Clayton. The four in the salon, Jane and Professor Porter, Clayton and the captain, discovered that they locked in. The crew was mutinied. Newton, the seaman, has informed the captain. Newton leaves. A scream is heard. It's his. Grabbing the two automatics, the captain and Clayton rush to the door. It's locked. We're pawned in. Oh, what are they doing to that poor man? There, there, dear. Everything will be all right. I'm afraid it won't be all right. This is mutiny. <laughs> we can't stand here and let them torture that man this way. Open the door. Open it. You hear that? I won't stop him. I can't stand here and listen to that. I'm going to try and shoot the latch off the door. We'll do nothing of the sort. I'm captain here, and as long as I am captain, I'll be obeyed. Understand that. 
leave a devilish grave situation. This is mutiny. If I can get them to open that door of their own will, we have a chance. If I can't, we're better off in here. I suggest, Mr. Clayton, that you leave the matter entirely in the captain's hands. Oh, sorry, Captain. Not at all. Miss Porter. Yes, Captain. You will find in the top drawer of my desk a small jade green bottle. Its contents are deadly. I hope it proves to be a souvenir of an unsuccessful mutiny. You don't think, Captain, that it will be necessary? This is the scum of Port Set. And Port Set, my dear Clayton, well, you've seen it. I found the bottle, Captain. Thank you. Isn't there some way that we can placate these mutineers, Captain? If it's money, why, I have a little... And I have a great deal. See if you can buy them off. If they take the ship, everything on it is theirs anyway. Yont, my first mate, is in back of this. And Yont is no fool. He's rather an intelligent fellow, in fact. Uh, I've had several conversations with him. Seems rather interested in archaeology. You stand away from the door, Miss Porter. Thank you. Mr. Yont! Mr. Yont, do you hear me? Yont! Yeah, I heard you, Captain. Come here and lock this door. And get shot out. Oh, thank you, Captain. Throw those two automatics. Are you presuming to order me, Mr. Yont? You'll lose your papers for this. <laughs> My papers? You're on the high seas now, Skipper. Not at the Admiralty. My papers? They've been changed, Tracy. They're Captain's papers now. You are mad. This is mutiny. Do you realize what that means? Yes, and you'd better realize, too. Throw up those automatics on the deck. I'm not asking you... I'm telling you. And I'm telling you, Mr. Yacht, that I'll see this ship run aground in Hades before I'll take orders from you. Yeah? Well, we'll quit the bloody arms off of your nosy man, Newton, here, and throw him over the side. If those guns aren't thrown up on the deck in exactly one minute. Oh! No, Master! Throw them out, please! Just throw them out! Oh, throw them out, please! Please, please throw them out! Oh, oh, there goes mine. All right. Where's the other one? Well, I... I guess... I guess they've got us there. Did you take the clip out of that automatic before you chucked it out, Clayton? No, no, I didn't. Uh, not very clever of you. There it goes. Uh. You're learning to take orders readily, Captain. Come in here. Oh, I just happened to think... Quick, Father, give me that map. Uh, why, this? Uh, where did I... Uh, why, here it is. Andrew, you engage what this door. Is either the ex-captain or any passengers starting here? Yeah, I stop it. Stop well, it. Well, Tracy, it seems... You're a dirty casual. Shut up, Clayton. I won't shut up. What? Ah! Oh. Oh, you, you feel, Clayton. Stand back there, all of you. Or I'll start blasting that's just to show you how this ship is going to be run from now on. Only next time, I'll use the business end and not the butt of the gun. I wouldn't be surprised if you'd killed him, Yonk. It doesn't make a great deal of difference, Tracy. Not to you, it doesn't. They hang them just as high for mutiny as they do for murder. Not when there aren't any witnesses. You don't mean... That there won't be any witnesses? Yes. Tarzan regains consciousness. A sinewy thing of all muscle is wrapping itself around him, slowly encircling him. He voices the ferocious cry of a battling beast. The contracting length wound around him tightens. Tarzan struggles. 
Then suddenly he feels himself lifted high in the air another moment, and he finds himself safe on the broad back of Tantor the elephant. Tantor, his friend, despite his aching head, Tarzan gives a fall of triumph. Tantor, the great beast of the jungle, whom even Sabor fears, hears the call of his friend. The wise beast knows that all is well with the white ape upon his back. Tantor is happy too, for Tarzan is dearer to Tantor than all else in the world. A strange jungle friendship, as strong as it is hard. Tantor throws back his great trunk and trumpets to tell the fastest of the whole forest and his denizens to the mighty Tantor and his friend Tarzan are pressing on their way. Let all beware. Tarzan feels himself all over gingerly and then shrugs. Nearness to death is light, not adventure in the jungle. Guiding Tantor by kicking him behind the ear, Tarzan directs the great beast to the seashore and his cabin. Tantor sways along his way at a speed which is almost unbelievable for so clumsy an appearance, tearing up the trees and brush which impede his way. Then Tarzan hears the beating of the surf. And in a few minutes they come out of the jungle onto the beach. A strip of white sand. A sea of darkness divided by golden bands. Tarzan looks down the path of the moon on the water. He gasps. A boat. That means men. Tarzan the ape thrills. Because he sees in them that which he most wants to be. Man. Tarzan the man. Tarzan of the apes. From out the pages of Edgar Rice Burroughs' immortal book, we recall the strange history of Tarzan. Tarzan the mighty hunter. Tarzan the white god of a dark continent. Tarzan of the apes. You're mad, John. You're mad. There's only one way for you to save your skin now, and that is for you to let me resume command. Throw yourself on the mercy of the court when we return. If you assume command of this boat, it's your death war. I'm the first mate. I take command when anything happens to the captain. Isn't that right? When anything happens to the captain? Yes, it will. Well, get down to it, John. Get down to it. What do you want? What do you think, Professor Porter? I really wouldn't know, Mr. Young. I have never made a study of ship. Rats? No, but you've made a study of old maps. Where is it? Unfortunately, I, I don't know what you're talking about. So that. Where is it? If you will tell me what you are looking for, then perhaps I might not prove so obtuse. Listen, you old fool. I'm talking about that chart. The one on which the treasure is indicated. Break it out. Where is it? Mr. Johnson. Do you mind if I open this port and let in some air? Bango, open that port for the lady. Oh, yeah. Oh, never mind. I'll do it. Bango, get that lover off of the floor and stow him on the bunk. Oh, yeah. Mr. Clayton seems to be taking quite a nap. He, he's dead. No, he's all right. Well, Yount, what's your procedure? Water, where's that chart? Uh, really, I... Uh, I don't know, huh? I haven't the slightest conception what you're talking about. Bad memory, eh? Well, there's a cure for that. An old Chinese cure. Gates, Bango, get the professor below. We'll try the water cure. 
for his memory. Aye, aye, sir. Come on here, Governor. Uh, 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 Come on now, Fisher. Now, come on here. Don't fear, Yon. You wouldn't resort to torture. No. Listen, Tracy. I'm not committing mutiny to be stopped by that old goat. Yes, I'll torture him. And if he doesn't come through then, there's the woman there. I want that chart, and I'm going to have it. You're just a little too late, Mr. Young. Late? I threw the chart out the porch when I opened it just now. Jane, you, you, you didn't. Why, why, that chart might have opened a, a new vista of history. I'm sorry, Father, but... Oh, you threw it out of the port, did you? Well, young lady, I think you're lying. And for your sake, you'd better be. I'm going to search your stateroom. And if I don't find it... Gates, you and Pango keep watch here. I would suggest, John, that you drop anchor. You're coming in pretty close. The coastal curve is very gradual on the African west coast. I'll run the boat, Tracy. I see you will. A ground. And another thing. If I don't find that chart in your stateroom, I'm going to give you exactly a half an hour to produce it, Porter. And then your daughter will wish you had. You swine! We're in a a quandary, I'd say. What would you suggest doing, Captain? Jones isn't bluffing. Best thing is to give him the chart he's talking about. Because if we don't, John will make good his threats. Uh, Where is the chart, my dear? Uh, uh, Be careful that these men don't overhear. I told the truth, Father. I did throw it overboard. You mean the chart is gone? Why, yes. Will it make any difference? Any difference? All the difference in the world. You'll never get John to believe that you threw it out that port. You think you're trying to keep it from him. You'll try to make your tell by every way his devilish mind can think of. Oh, Jane, you, you shouldn't have done that. There's no way to get it back now. There might be. How? How? You know that small jade green bottle that contained poison, Captain? The one you told me to take out of your drawer? Yes. Well, I poured the contents of that out. I rolled the chart up and put it in the bottle before I threw it out the port. It might have washed ashore. It has a good chance of it. The current in the cold swings up against the beach. Now. Good, good. The loss of that chart would seriously affect the opportunity of finding vast treasure. The loss of that chart means more than that, Professor Porter. It will mean the loss of all our lives. We've got to find that chart. We have to find it, that's all. And if we don't... It will be unfortunate that Miss Porter emptied the contents of that bottle. Meanwhile, Yant, the mutinous first mate, has searched every inch of the passengers' cabin, ripping open mattresses, scattering the contents of their luggage, but to no avail. He cannot find the chart. Yant has risked much to get the chart. He leaves the wreckage of the last cabin. He will have that chart. He'll resort to the terrible torture used many years ago in the China Seas, the water cure, where the victim has water forced down his throat until his eyes protrude and his stomach distends until the intense pressure inside his body bursts his heart. Anything to get that chart. Gaining the deck, Yant notices that the boat is well into the harbor. He orders the anchors dropped and the engines cut. Then, with a fiendish, dreadful glint of purpose making his eyes inhumanly cruel, he makes for the salon. He rips open the door. Tangle, go below. Bring four men topside with buckets and lots of water. See here, Yant. You're making a mistake. That chart did go out the port. I don't believe it. They're all lying. But when I get through with you, you'll be begging to tell the truth. 
thing. Don't be a fool, young. We know what you're planning to do. Listen. Miss Porter threw that chart out the port. Before she did, she put it in a jade green bottle. The current in this cove will wash that bottle up on the beach. Let me and one of your men go ashore and look for it. To find it's our only chance of saving our skins. Yant, convinced that Captain Tracy is telling the truth, finally agrees that the captain shall go ashore with two of his men to look for the bottle on the beach. But before Captain Tracy leaves, Yant takes the two men who are to accompany him outside the cabin and talks to them. Gates, you and Fangle go ashore with Tracy. He's looking for a jade green bottle that's washed ashore. Aye, aye, sir. And when you come back, come back alone. Understand? I understand, sir. We'll stick the blighter. Fangle's a hitch in the carvies easing the initials in somebody's back. All right. Get those davits out and put that boat over the side. Crouching high up in a tree hidden from view, Tarzan watches as a small boat bearing three men pulls to shore. The ape man for the first time is seeing beings of his own kind. His first impulse is to drop down the tree, run down to the beach to greet them. But the shyness of a wild thing keeps him motionless, staring from his retreat. Tango, the giant Chinese, whose eyes are dead and unblinking as a serpent's, and the sly cockney gates are rowing the heavy boat. In the bow sits Captain Tracy, his weather-beaten face a mask. Tarzan watches the men beach the boat and start walking slowly down the shore looking for something. Tarzan follows them. Swinging slowly, silently from branch to branch in the wooded fringe which separates the jungle from the shore. Studying the first of his fellow men that he has ever seen, Tarzan takes a liking to the captain. The other two he despises. They slink behind the tall men as two cowardly hyenas following a sick lion. Tarzan's mind is in a chaos of curiosity. For what are they looking? Then he sees the tall man reach down with a cry and pick up something green from the beach. The two others snatch it from his hand. gesture, Tarzan freezes. There will be a fight. Two against one. Tarzan will go to the aid of the tall man. But to his surprise, the tall man merely shrugs and turns about to return to the boat. Is he afraid, Tarzan wonders? They retrace their steps. The tall man is still ahead, followed by the copper man and the weazened one. Tarzan follows them. His keen eyes see the weazened man nod to the copper man, whose eyes are like hista, snakes. The copper man slowly draws a long knife from his waist. He stoops, then rushes up behind the tall man. Tarzan yells to warn him. Tracy turns at the fearful cry. The Chinaman's knife is descending on him. Tracy's fist shoots out. It lands on the Oriental's jaw. The knife is then gashing his arm. But the blow has sent Fango back so that the cruel blade has not plunged into his body. For a second, all three stand motionless. Then Gates dives at Tracy's legs. Tracy brings up his foot, catches Gates full in the mouth. Gates groans but catches the captain's legs. He goes down. Fangle jumps on the captain, patting both knees in his chest. Raises his knife, trying to plunge it into Tracy's heart. Tarzan drops from the tree, dashes down the beach toward the fighting men. The knife flashes downward. Tarzan of the Apes was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs in 1914. The novel told the story of an English noble family stranded on the African continent. Gorillas kill the mother and father, leaving their son, Lord Greystroke, to be raised by apes. 
The radio program aired from 1932 to 1936, then a new series ran from 1951 to 1953. Burroughs himself was involved with the early Tarzan radio episodes. In those early episodes, Burroughs' daughter, Joan, played Jane, and her husband, James Pierce, played Tarzan. Tarzan is considered to be the first major syndicated radio program. The radio program originally followed the novel, Tarzan of the Apes, but then moved on to do radio-specific adventures. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.